As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, whilst some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now, and some say, no, so let us melt and make no noise, no tear floods nor sigh tempests move, for profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears, men reckon what it did and meant, but trepidation of the spheres, the greater far, is innocent. Dull sublunary lovers love, whose soul is sense, cannot admit absence, because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined, that ourselves know not what it is, inter-assured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth, if the other do. And though it in the centre sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. That gorgeous poem, A Valediction, Forbidding Morning, is by one of the greatest poets ever to write in English, John Donne. John Donne, born in the reign of Elizabeth I, a sailor who singed the beard of the King of Spain at Cadiz, a diplomat and a churchman, Don the writer of some of the most erotic verses that exist, Don the Dean of St Paul's, Don in other words, the myriad and mysterious. Today we're going to explore John Donne's life and work with his biographer, Dr Catherine Rundle, who, as you'll see, is as ferociously intelligent as her subject. Dr Rundle is a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, her best-selling books for children have been translated into more than 30 languages and have won multiple awards. And she's the author of Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, which won the prestigious Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction last year. The book has just come out in paperback, and I am delighted to welcome Dr. Rundle to the podcast. Dr. Rundle, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm very excited to talk to you about your wonderful book, Super Infinite. I'm not the only person to have found it wonderful, obviously, as it is prize winning, but I am delighted to have the opportunity myself to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Now, this is a strange place to start, but towards the end of the book, you write that if you want to make your point, make it so vivid and strange that it cuts straight through your interlocutor's complacent inattention. And one thing we can say for certain is that you do in this book. You write with an arresting choice of tone, which, like Dunn, is both lyrical and frank, and there are lots of provocative metaphors throughout it. And I wondered how you found your way into this voice and register. I think it was partly a sense that if you're going to write about Dunn, you owe it to his ghost not to be tedious, because he was so many things, but he was never, even in his most impenetrable and opaque moments. He was never boring. And one of the arguments of the book is that he offers us 
a mode of thinking about language that might be useful and galvanic for our own lives, that the ways that he was using language in ways that were both applauded and vigorously derided by his contemporaries might teach us something, might teach us that in a world in which many are ready to rhyme love and dove, you could stand up and say, what if we didn't? What if we pushed language a little further? Would it maybe push what looks possible outside of language a little bit larger as well? I promise not to start every question by quoting you back at yourself, but you, <laughs> I'm going to do it twice more at least. You say time eats paperwork. Besides his poetry, if we're trying to access the life of John Donne, what do we have? So time does lay waste to your paperwork, but we are lucky. We have kept quite a lot of John Donne. There is the poetry of which there is a fairly vast amount that has survived. Um, there are the verse letters, which of course are poetry, but poetry designed for a different audience. He was a man who loved to say a thing in prose, in a letter, and then say it again better in poetry. And then we have two books that he wrote, Pseudomata, which is an account that he wrote for King James I, discussing why it is that those Catholics who are put to death by the state are not martyrs, but are sinning. And that book is large and ferociously boring. It would be swifter to eat it than to read it. It is one of those things where people often ask me where to start with Don Dunn, and my answer is usually, it doesn't really matter. Don't start with Pseudomata. It will put not just you off, but by a sort of radiator therapy, everyone around you. And then he also wrote a satirical, very genuinely funny book called Conclave Ignati, Ignatius's Conclave, which is a sort of imagined satire about Catholics in which you go to hell and see people having a competition of who is the greatest inventor of evil. It's cracking. And then we have the text that he wrote in what he believed were going to be his final days, the devotions upon emergent occasions. And he wrote them in a breakneck hurry, in a fever that he believed with good reason would kill him. And those are fascinating. They are a man laying down near the end of his life, everything which he believes to be true, a kind of unspooling onto the page of that which he hopes others will come and gather. And that is where you find that very famous line, which people often assume is poetry, but is in fact prose. The no man is an island. Every man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. And so it is interesting to think, although he didn't die, he actually lasted another eight years, he thought that that would have been the message he left behind, graven in diamonds. Graven in diamonds. I told you it would be one more time I'd quote you back, and there may be others. But the other thing that really struck me that you said early on about his early life is that his internal baggage was piled high with skulls. What was it about his family? What was it about his formation that would haunt him over the course of his life? So I think the thing most people who know a little about Dunn know is that he was born Catholic at a time when to be Catholic was to be persecuted, and he ended one of the most powerful Protestants in England. And he was the direct descendant via his great-great-great-uncle, that was Sir Thomas More, on his mother's side. He is said, although there isn't very good paperwork on this, to have been to see his great-uncle hung, drawn and courted for being a Jesuit priest. He certainly did go to see his uncle, another Jesuit, in the Tower of London, who had risked being put to death. And then 
if you skip forward a little, he had a younger brother called Henry, and Henry was his beloved duty. He was one year younger than him, and the two of them went together to university, to Oxford, at a time when you had to go under 16 if you were a Catholic so that you didn't have to sign the oath. And they were very little. They gave their ages of 11 and 10. They were actually 12 and 11. And then later, Dunn went to the Inns of Court to be a dash-about-town beautiful young lawyer, and little Henry followed him. Henry was 19, and Henry decided that it would be possible to harbour a Catholic priest in his rooms. And it was, of course, punishable by death to be a Catholic priest. The young man who he was harbouring was captured. And Henry, under torture, betrayed him and said that he was a priest and did shrive him. Henry was thrown in jail. It was said at the time that he was thrown deliberately into a jail with plague in it. That, that may well not have been true, but it was believed to be true. It was plausible of the state. And we think we know that Dunn didn't visit Henry. Possibly he didn't know that he didn't have time to waste. And Henry died of the plague alone. And the plague came hard and fast. We know, I think it's easy to forget how powerful a spectre that was over people's lives. It was said that you could sup with your family and dine with Christ, that it could come on in the matter of a day. So Henry died at the age of 19. And then, of course, he married Anne. And then he had baby after baby, and he lost baby after baby. Twelve pregnancies for Anne, six dead at various times in their lives. Not all as children, although two stillborn. So this was a man who carried with him a conga line of ghosts, who was followed everywhere he went by memories of the loved lost. And you can tell it's there in the work. He very rarely, rarely writes about them, but you can feel it in the sense that he has of dread and of horror. And it's why I think it's so important to think about, because the flip side is also true. There is almost no other man of the period who you can find insisting over and over on the necessity of awe and the miraculous quality of humanity. Someone who has seen so much lost and still insists utterly on life. And, you know, there's that moment where he says to compare the world unto a man it's too small a thing that compared unto a man, the world itself is a dwarf. He had this sense of us as infinite, as super infinite, which is why the book is called that, this sense of us as miraculous disasters. And I think that's worth turning to now as the world burns. And there's very much this sense that he can engage on that cosmic level with thinking about the infinite and yet also is, can be immensely earthy. And that contrast, that apparent paradox is present there as well, because you've got, this is the great erotic writer, he's writing about sex, and yet he's also writing about the entropy of the body. And these are the two sides of the same coin, if we think about his more physical approach to metaphor. Exactly. And if you think about it, Dunn was writing at a time where it was still fairly common not to acknowledge the idea that the body rots. And he was one who was fascinated by it. It is in the love poetry. He imagines in the relic, he imagines him and his lover being dug up, the two of them, and her hair still being braceleted around them. And this was a man for whom the fact that the body is a faulting thing, is doomed to decay, was not a reason to fail 
to acknowledge the fact that the body is also a kind of answer to a question that cannot be articulated except with the body. That the body could be a transcendent thing. He says this ecstasy does unperplex. He loved the trans prefix the book writes about a bit, the idea of trans as through and beyond, that the love might transubstantiate, transform. He was somebody who just was erupting from a period in which, I don't want to exaggerate, I don't want to suggest that everybody writing before him was cleanly carrying roses in their teeth and he was the first to offer fleas. But it is true that the chivalric tradition, the idea that you would cast your lady love as a rose, as a dove, and he stood there and said, what if it's better than that? What if it's better than that because it's stranger? You have said that he's never boring. And here you're saying that he is doing something different. The criticism of him that comes after is that his verse is not sweet and does not scan. But do you think even from the early poetry, we can see something new in him? Yeah, I really do. The reception of him is very telling. The fact that in his time, in part because, as you say, he didn't scan, which can seem like a small thing now, but of course, at a time when poetry was so key to the national consciousness, at which poetry could be so many things, both a love letter and a flirtation with a proprietor, it could be an invoice, it could be propaganda, it could be revenge, it could be scurrilous, it could be politics, it could be anti-politics. Therefore, People were concerned with its propriety and with its correctness. And I think a lot of people saw him in breaking down form as refusing to scan in the old ways, as in some ways threatening poetry. And Ben Jonson famously said, done for not keeping of accent, deserved hanging. And yet he was probably the most popular unpublished poet. So he did publish a little bit in his lifetime in a way that I think is interesting and nuanced, but mostly that was a manuscript world. And so he was writing poetry in manuscript and putting it on little scraps of paper, folded into four, tucked into a sleeve, sent in the post, one person to another. And it was copied and copied and copied. And the numbers of versions of the poems we have suggest that even if some were anxious about this poetry, others were wildly hungry for it. You mentioned that one thing that people might know about Dunn is that he's born a Catholic and you jovially call the question of Dunn's faith the central boxing ring of Dunn's studies. So who are the contestants? <laughs> okay, so the heavyweight contestant on one side would be one of the finest Dunn scholars ever to have lived, John Carey. And John Carey's book, John Dunn, Life, Mind and Art, a ravishing book about John Dunn, makes as its central argument that the most important thing about Dunn was that he was an apostate and that it essentially, this is simplifying too much, but reckons that his transfer of religion was one of expediency and that he put his finger to the wind and saw that a brilliant boy would find it difficult to unspool his brilliance for money in any world in which he maintained his Catholic faith. And then since Carey wrote in the 80s, there have been a couple of developments. And one of them is the redating of some letters, which I do describe in the book and won't go into too much here because it's a bit complicated, that makes it look like at the time that Dunn was trying to become a priest in the Anglican faith, he was trying much harder and against much stronger opposition than we thought, that he had to battle it was not like the world was ushering him in. He had to insist and insist. And that insistence seems to me to have a certain amount of authentic desire to it. 
I think there's also an argument to be made about his increasing nationalism and how nationalism required you to subscribe to the religion of the day and the religion of which your regent was head. So I think there's this immense grab bag of possibilities. There's also an increased reckoning that maybe Henry's death, which is bound up with Jesuits, that he blamed the Jesuits for it to an extent, their increasing hardline stance, which made it harder and harder for young men like that to find succor. And so they turned to like 19 year olds and that may well have been part of his rage. So my inclination is to say, I'm sure there was some expediency in it somewhere, but changing your religion happens with genuine heartfelt passion. And I think it's possible that Dunn did do it. Yes, there can be a sort of essentialism about it otherwise, can't there? Mm. That we can't change our spots, which speaks more to our identity politics, I think, than to the early 17th century. Exactly. I think we can get anachronistically bound up. There's a very good book by a writer, I've currently forgotten, that details the ways in which people did just switch religious faith throughout their life two or three times, that it may have been a greater possibility than than we're willing to imagine it in post-chance. If we can think a bit more about the formative experiences, and I was struck by you mentioning nationalism there, he's growing up in an age that's coming up off a marder-fueled Protestant xenophobia. Did he have a formative experience at sea? He did. I mean, it's very difficult to know how formative it was. But Dunn famously was a privateer, a legalised pirate for Queen Elizabeth with the Earl of Essex and Walter Riley. And they went off to sack Cadiz. And the idea was that they would capture a great armada and bring it back in great aplomb and triumph. In the end, they screwed up quite badly, but they did manage to sack Cadiz and they did manage to set fire to some boats. And so when they came back, even though financially it had been ruinous and the Queen had not in any way made back her investment, it was a moment of great public clamouring. There was a kind of enthusiasm for the young boys who strode off that boat. But Dunn's experience of that expedition, in which he had a who-knows-how-active hand, we only know about it through two poems, The Calm and the Storm, and he doesn't sound very enthusiastic. It doesn't sound like it went well. It's very possible that he essentially did almost nothing, that he was a not very able sailor who marched into Cadiz under the hot sun and then did very little and then came back again. And there are contemporary reports of other sailors on the same expedition that say that's exactly what they did. So the idea of him as a swashbuckling hero would definitely never have quite been the case Dunn had many, many half-successful, half-failed gestures towards other careers. He was famously an MP, which was in the gift of his employer, Thomas Energenden. And again, doesn't seem to have done much with that. It wouldn't really have been the case that he should have. He would have been there to be Sir Thomas Edgerton's eyes and ears. But also Dunn, for a breathtakingly brilliant man, for a man whose intelligence, when you really come up against it, feels like being in the presence of both a switchblade and a searchlight. He really failed at a lot of jobs quite hard. The other things we need to talk about, of course, are his erotic poetry, his poetry full of desire and physicality. And yet you suggest he's a man with possibly only one lover. And I wonder if that changes our view of him, or do we assume that this great writer of erotic poetry is drawing on early experience? And does it matter? I mean, this is sort of fundamentally comes to the question of the relationship between what one writes and one's life, I suppose. Right. And that is, of course, the other great debate about Dunn. It's the thing I get asked most. Was he really having as much sex as those poems would suggest? And I think the answer is we have no way of knowing, but it's unlikely. I think it's very unlikely that he was a virgin by the time he married Anne. 
But I think the image the poetry would offer us of this dazzlingly beautiful rake cutting his way through a swathe of the finest women in England, that's just very unlikely. Women of the upper classes were very carefully protected. The more money that surrounded you, the more protected your virginity was. And he wrote very scathingly of the plump and muddy whores. So prostitution is unlikely to have had a real pull for him. So all of those early verses, things like the flea or to his mistress going to bed, you know, oh, my America, my newfound land. How far were those for girls? And how far was he writing those for a small group of hyper-educated young men of his own age and class who are responding in kind, though not in the same level of talent? And we'll never know. But my guess is it was mostly a kind of exuberant joke for the boys and a kind of imagining of what it might be to be a great lover. Although we'll never know. One of the things that's so gorgeous about the poetry is it does have such sweet, but you can still tell it's the same man. So if you think of something like the flea, which I'm sure all your listeners will be familiar with from school. It describes a flea running over the bodies of the woman who he is ostensibly speaking to. And then it says, mark but this flea and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. Me it sucked first and now sucks thee. And in this flea our two bloods mingled be. And when that was published, his son, John Dunn Jr., made sure to use the long S when he was casting the sentences, the long S, which famously looks identical to an F. So me, it sucked first and now sucks thee was obviously also offering a more explicit rendering for those who wanted it. And you wouldn't necessarily put that at the front of a word, actually, and you'd often use the long S in the middle. So it's got to be a deliberate choice. It's definitely, there's no way that it was just a sort of stylistic norm. It was absolutely on purpose. And then you think about something like Love's Growth, which we know as far as it is possible to know that he wrote for Anne because Anne, the woman he married, was called Anne Moore. And he puns on that. And that one, it starts, I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite if spring make it more. And that more was for her. And I think that poem would have been even more compelling for her in the knowledge which she absolutely had, that he was the author of a great deal of licentious rakery, that someone would then turn from that to a kind of longing and a kind of precision of desire. I think it would have been breathtaking. I'm a spy, doing whatever spies do. But what am I going to whip out of my pocket next? Careful. In this special month of Patented, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of James Bond by having a look at some of the inventions that have changed espionage. From gadgets and their creators, to the cars and cocktails that make Bond look oh so effortlessly cool. Join me, Campbell, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, A History of Inventions, where I will have my can on a string up against the walls of some of the best historians in this field. Look forward to your company.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. That marriage to Anne Moore is a clandestine one. His first biographer calls it his remarkable error, and it lands him in prison. Tell me about this turning point of his life, what it meant for him to plunge into domesticity. I think it would have been a real blow for both of them. I think she often gets left out. But if you think of what it actually meant, they were shocked that he was thrown into jail. Dunn absolutely knew that it would not be popular with Anne's father, Sir George Moore, because Dunn, he was from a relatively well-born family, but there was no money. The Various Catholic shakedowns of the state over the last hundred years had really rid them of any kind of wealth. And he would have wanted what Dunn himself later wanted for his daughters, which was stability and safety. And Dunn was neither. But being thrown into jail was a real shock. And then if you think of Anne, she would have been beautiful. She would have been adored. She would have been well-born, dazzling her way around the ballrooms of London And then she would have been the victim of so much gossip, so much opprobrium, so much laughter, so much did you hear. And she was a baby. She was only around 17. And I think the two of them will have had to find ways to face it. But it wouldn't have been easy to face. They had no money. He was immediately sacked from his job. He didn't get it back. They went to live with her cousin, who was a very sort of hunt and shoot and fishing type and famously had just a house full of portraits of horses. And... Then the babies came very swiftly and those babies would get ill and there would be a stillborn baby. And Dunn discovered the thing that many men and far, far, far more women have had abruptly and painfully thrust upon them, which is that domesticity both denies you the glamour of outside applause and the drill down intensity of scholarship, that it is hard. And he did not deal with it well. The poetry continued for a while. Things like the sun rising, you know, she all states and all princes I. That's after their marriage. But the poetry tailed off in the end. He started spending longer and longer in London away from her. And his letters often express a kind of ambivalence, calls his children a mast, which is an inedible fruit. And then she died in childbirth of their 12th baby. And I think often that that story the girl who married the finest love poet, I would say, that the English language has ever offered us, is proof that love is not enough. Yes, and it's also very salutary to read of these losses, of these deaths, 
I mean, the loss for her of her youth in being pregnant 12 times over 16 years, but then these children. And I'm struck by this idea that the poetry tailed off. I mean, Ben Johnson, of course, there's that wonderful poem to his lost son. Mm. And one possibly gets a sense that Don may have been wonderful at begetting children, but perhaps not so wonderful at fathering them. Yes, there is always the difficulty that you, I know, come across so much. We do not know what we're missing. So there might be four perfect letters lost to fire and time, in which he talks lovingly and perceptively about his children. But in the absence of that, knowing that John Dee wrote down his child's first words in his diary, Ben Johnson wrote Ben Johnson his finest work of art, and Dunn does not seem to have written poetry for his children, barely seems to have written about them in his letters, notes them almost entirely only when they are expensive, or ill, or dead. I am not sure that his particular brand of labyrinthine intelligence made him a good father. And I am not sure that he offered the generosity of care. And I think it would be wildly anachronistic to try any man of the period by the standards of today, and I'm never interested in doing so. But there were men who are more engaged in their children's lives than Dunn appears to have been. And there are moments where he just comes across as such an arse. I mean, later, much later, when one of his children is getting married, he takes from her a diamond ring and offers her in return a better diamond that he owns. And then he never gives her the second diamond. He just keeps both diamonds. And in a world in which women could not own property, but could own jewels, it's particularly egregious. And it's difficult to think of him without a certain amount of distaste at that moment. And also, we'll absolutely take your point about the archive, and it's very well made. And we will come back and talk about his archive in a second. But there's also what he does. I mean, he gets what you call his sort of ideal job. And the timing of it is just awful. But Anne has just died. And then he leaves his children for, what, three years? He leaves them. So I suppose he would have been justifying it to himself, the idea that by going on this diplomatic escapade to try and stop war in Europe, they didn't succeed, spoiler, but this idea that he would go, he would preach, he would be a kind of emissary. And I think it's that thing that we are often loath to think about children, especially of the past, as having as vivid an inner life as children today or adults today but his children had just been bereft of their mother. They had just seen this new baby who was expected also die. And he just packed up and left them. And we don't really know with who. Who was looking after the babies? I mean, we come across this always that because people aren't writing it down, what is it like to be a child and what is it like to be a mother are just these black holes of information into which we put our most careful scholarship that we can. I loved the episode that you did about what was it like to be a young child in the sort of Tudor to Renaissance period. That was magnificent. But what would it have been like for those little kids left without a father while he was off potentially not having a very good time himself, but trying, I suppose, to manufacture a different version of himself, a more powerful one, a more eloquent one, a more diplomatic one. It's just very, very difficult to know. And of course, that would have been the mores of the time. It would have been reckoned that that's what you did. You went out to seek your fortune. But my God, it was bad timing. There's a scholar I haven't yet inveigled on called Sarah Knott, who wrote a wonderful book, you might well have come across it, called Mother, who talks about precisely this idea of how children interrupt narrative and that we can't get a historic mothering, even though it's what women did for most of history. I just want to press a little bit 
on his attitude towards women as well, because we know him as this great lover of women. And yet it seems from what you write that he didn't always love them. And I wanted to ask whether you think this is just a sort of reflection of anti-female attitudes from this deeply patriarchal time, or is this his disgust going further than his time? Or is this satire, basically? Is this misogyny deliberately overstated? So my reckoning would tend to be his misogyny must never be overlooked because it wasn't just misogyny in the flavour of the time. His misogyny was, I would say, you know, if you were to weigh it, weighed roughly the same as the misogyny of the time, but it came in different forms. It was more vivid and it was often created with a greater disgust, in part because his writing was in general more vivid. It would therefore make sense that when he is writing in the tradition, the anti-Pian, the idea that you would insult your foe's mistress. That was very common. So you might say that your enemy's mistress has ugly hair and a wart. And he would say, you know, ripe spermatic boils grow upon their face. It's just much more potent. And then the place that we find his most vivid misogynistic writing is in the problems and paradoxes. And this is where it does become, as you say, very difficult to know how much he means them. It, for instance, poses this idea, you know, do women have souls? Later, the same man would stand at the pulpit and denounce those who dared ever to question the idea that women might not have souls. And of course, he's somewhat talking about his younger self. And so the prose paradox would often be a way of saying exactly the opposite to the thing you were saying. So you would push something you did not agree with to so far an extent that it became manifestly ridiculous. And it was a way of critiquing at a time when the state censored all of its citizens. So it could be a way of saying the opposite of the thing you wanted to say, but it could also be a way of using that plausible deniability to actually say the thing you wanted to say. It was an almost impossibly undecipherable category to be writing in. And it's in that category that he writes about female promiscuity, about women who use makeup, and about the idea that sort of women are essentially sort of destroyers of men who sort of chew men up. And it's very difficult to pin down exactly where he stands. But I think even if you were to give him the most gorgeous benefit of the doubt and say they are pure paradox, they still have in them a real bitter edge of cruelty. A bit of grit in the oyster. Exactly. I mean, I suppose this question of whether he meant what he says, it comes up elsewhere. You talk about his defence of suicide and the idea that he suggests that Christ committed suicide. And I was also struck by his talent for flattery Mm. and those two funeral elegies on Elizabeth Drury. And for me, there was something really disquieting and unethical about (laughs) projecting these qualities onto a woman he had never known and didn't love. Playing with falsehood, perhaps, might be a way to put it? I think exactly that. I think that's very perceptive. The idea that to take something completely straightforwardly and not to read around its corners and check its vicinity for snakes and diamonds would just be a foolishness that if you're going to perpetrate that form of reading, that's all you deserve. I think he absolutely had a sense that what you write is loaded with several layers. And of course, that's why his poetry is often so difficult, because he is layering it and layering it with references, with allusions, often with forms that are themselves allusions to poets who would make specific political points. So form itself could have a kind of politics. And then, as you say, those poems that he wrote for the Drury family about a girl he never knew, but in which he essentially hymns her 
to the skies and met with some criticism for it. You know, if he had written it of the Virgin Mary, it had been something. And that might be him playing with the idea of how far you can push something, how far you can push the ideal of perfection, how far you can push the ideal of womanhood. He's fascinated by excess and by intellectual extremes. And I think often that's what you find both in that poetry and in his hilarious letters of flattery, especially at around the time that Leslie Stevens, Virginia Woolf's father, was writing. There was a big fashion for condemning that flattery. Dunn wrote some of the most outrageous letters in which he says, the city is dead because you're not here. And if you were to die, it would be like there's no sun. But the thing is, to really condemn him, he'd have to be writing those letters to men with power and money. And he's usually not. He's sometimes writing them to women with some money, but often he's writing them just to people, just to boys he knew from school and the little sister of a guy he knew who had nothing to offer him but her pleased laughter. So I think we have to also reckon that in that flattery, there's a game going on. And because it's no longer the tradition, that game might have fallen flat for us in the last 400 years. But I think we need to see that it was buoyed by in-jokes. One thing you do so well is you fight this idea that there are many duns. You suggest that he is super infinite, that he contains multitudes. And there's often a switch made when he turns to the church in his early 40s. And we've talked a little bit about some of the discourse around his journey to priesthood. But one thing you don't let him do is go flat at that time. What do you think made and makes his sermons so arresting? Those sermons have in them the same spike of originality and of movement, of voiciness. So one of the things about Dunn's poetry is it's often like you're being landed in the middle of a discussion, a very vivid scenario. They move the poems, they very rarely hold still. It's often quite difficult to pin down exactly what is happening. And that movement, though not necessarily that opacity, came with him to his sermons and his desire for rhetoric that you could carry with you that was bold enough that it would stick with you to the end of your days. And then also, there's a vulnerability to his sermons that was rare. It really wasn't that commonplace to offer a vision of your own struggle with God. And he has this extraordinary moment. He offers the idea that no matter how precise we know his mind could be, he spoke multiple languages, he had read colossally. And yet, in prayer, his mind was not his own. And he writes, I throw myself down in my chamber and I call in and invite God and his angels. And when they are there, I ignore God and his angels for the noise of a fly, the rattling of a coach, the whining of a door, a memory of yesterday's pleasure, the fear of yesterday's tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knee, a noise in my ear, a light in my eye, a nothing, a fancy, a chimera, troubles me in prayer. This idea that it is not easy to turn your heart to God, when everyone was admonishing you to so do, would have had in it a generosity and a liberation. And he was also capable in those sermons of being harsh and dry. He rather hilariously preached the wedding sermon of the child of a friend of his. You might well expect that he would offer some of the old visions that he had of the power of human love. He instead says... Few pray for the gist of continency, few are content with the inconstancy which they have. 
but are sorry that they can express no more incontinency. We rise poorer, ignobler, weaker for every night's sin than we lay down. We sin and sin and sin. Congratulations to the happy couple. (laughs) But then the same man coming up against a brief flicker of an idea in the culture that it was wrong to laugh, that laughter had in it a kind of sin. He stands up in the pulpit and says, not to laugh, that is a stupidity, that is a contempt. So he was a complex and unexpected speaker, but what he offered people was an immediacy. They said when he was Dean of St Paul's, hundreds and thousands of people flocked to see him speak. And the book opens with a moment where he was consecrating a chapel at Lincoln's Inn, and so many people flocked to hear him speak that there was a great crushing. And a contemporary wrote, two or three were taken up dead for the time, which, as you know, doesn't mean dead, it just means unconscious. But there's no record of him stopping. And if he had stopped, there probably would be. So it's most likely that he just kept going amongst this mosh pit of an audience. He stood there and kept preaching that he was used to people clamoring to hear what he could offer them. I imagine that combination of that frankness about the difficulties of prayer and how hard it is to engage with God, even though you've said you want to, and yet also moralizing seems to have been strangely attractive in this period as well. And I wonder if we, trying to understand this great writer of erotic poetry and the sort of textual pornography that he shared with his friends, and then this great deliverer of sermons, should Imagine perhaps that the rapture with which he described sex, he now turns towards its creator. I think it's very possible. If you think of him as a man who understood what it was to be knocked to your knees by something, whether that was by a woman and love or by God or by just the search for God, this idea that he is always bringing the full force of his intellect and the full force of his attention. You can find those in both. And of course, the same man writing Batter My Heart, Three-Person God, is the same man who is questing for both a theological and an intimately human understanding of the divine and the infinite. And I think it's why his poetry is hard. Dunn comes from a moment where there was occasionally an urge to simplify one's love poetry until what you had was Sir Philip Sidney, a poet I love, comparing my lady's shoulders unto two white doves. And then in a later poem, her cheeks are unto white doves. And you get to a point where you're like, really very into doves. But Dunn stood and said, what if it's better? And what if we seek for better and stranger and wilder and more vertiginous? And above all, more honest, what if more honest would give you succour? And the same man in his sermons is reaching for a kind of honesty. And because they were often between one and three hours long, to read them with modern ears, it can be hard. But there are moments of such beauty when he is writing about this idea that God's passion, God's love is transformative. This always transforming man found a great deal to love in the idea of transforming God. He said, we ask our daily bread and God never says you should have come yesterday. He never says you must come and end tomorrow, but today, if you will hear his voice, he will hear you. He brought light out of darkness, not out of lesser light. He can bring thy summer out of winter, 
though thou have no spring. And there I think you hear the same done. And then in one of the later sermons, he writes about being awake. He writes, now was there ever any man seemed to sleep in the cart between Newgate and Tyburn, between the prison and the place of execution, does any man sleep? And yet we sleep all the way from the womb to the grave, we are never thoroughly awake. And I think that awake is Dunn's call. And I think it's in the early poetry, which requires the full bastion of all your knowledge, all your learning, all your focus, all your heart. And then later, his sermons made real calls upon your attention. They demanded of you focus and the effort of belief. And I think that idea that your attention is the thing you owe, the miraculous and implausible and painful and bloody reality of being alive, that no matter everything, it is an astonishment, and it behoves you therefore to be astonished with all the force of your intellect. I think that that's something that is the reason that we still love him 400 years later. I want to pick up on this idea of him being this great writer of the infinite, which you just put so beautifully. And you say that death is his other permanent love. But I wonder in you saying awake, if it isn't rather eternity, it's the rising after death that he loves. We are amazed with no end, as you beautifully put it. Isn't it that that calls to him? I think you're right. And of course, the most vivid ways we have of knowing that are those last moments. So the final sermon, Death's Duel, which is a bleakly sad sermon. It's about death and it's about how we are essentially born astride the grave. But it ends with this idea of him keening out towards unity with God and that this idea that that is where he will end in endless forevers in that super infinite that he quests for. And then, of course, in that rather glamorous and dashing way that he decided to mark his death, he arranged for his final portrait to be done while he was very near death and his face had become skull-like and got an artist to come and draw on a board a full-length sketch of himself. And for it, a man who the book wanted the whole chapters about, he was very well-dressed and very interested in fashion. It turns up over and over in the poetry. He dressed himself in his winding sheet, and he tied it at the top and the bottom and then pushed it back like a kind of parting curtain. So it would be just his face. And then that was used as the model for the sculpture, which you can still go to see in St. Paul's Cathedral. It survived the Second World War. And this man who so loved death that his final portrait that he would be able to see of himself was essentially a portrait of his dead body. And he has said, I think we need to take this with a big old pinch of salt because Sir Isaac Walton, his first biographer, um, did enjoy a little bit of the old tying a bow and putting a little bit of red paint on everything. But he has said, as his final moments came on, to have arranged his arms as you would when you were laid out across his chest. And his final words were, I were miserable if I might not die. Yes, that wonderful cigar-shaped monument. Because it's that shape, one of the reasons it survived the Great Fire of London, because it just went straight down. And it does have those sort of curls at the top and the bottom. I took some friends to see it. And one of my friends was like, ah, it looks like a quality street. So (laughs) also looks like a quality street. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Your speaking about him today reflects the ravishing beauty of your book, which is this combination of the transcendent and the earthy. 
And it has been a great joy to have a chance to talk with you about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Night, you edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.